Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What happened to you? When did it happen? Why? How did you escape? When you arrive in the new country after fleeing the last... Questions like these come often, by immigration officers, new neighbors, schoolmates. Questions about what happened in the war are always difficult to answer, especially when they're asked by a stranger, especially when the stranger doesn't really care. When refugees are asked these questions, there's usually an underlying sentiment creeping behind the interrogation. Tell me something that hurts, bleeds, entertains. When Alice arrived in Canada after surviving the Rwandan genocide, these are the types of questions that she faced. And it changed the way she remembers her story, how she retells it, and who she chooses to share it with. It was telling me that there is a particular form of story and a very simple one that they're interested in. Everything else is somewhat irrelevant. Welcome back to On Things We Left Behind, a podcast by me, Sarado, and my sister, Surer, that traces the hidden afterlives of war on those who lived through it and on those who make sense of it in the aftermath. On today's episode, The Parts We Don't Share, we're going to talk about it. No, not that. Not about what happened to her, how bad it felt, how she'll never be the same. We're going to talk about having to talk about it all the time and what it does to a person to be morphed from an agent into a victim by everyone around you. How we choose to describe ourselves reveals a great deal about us. Whether we are roles, mother, sister, friend, whether we are what we do, student, writer, podcaster, or whether we're something else entirely, this is how Alice describes herself. I often think of myself as a, a storyteller. I think I, I've always been drawn to stories. I always um, seek to tell stories. So I think I would dry- describe myself as a storyteller. Other words Alice uses to describe herself? Scholar, mom of two beautiful boys, African, feminist. But the words we use to describe ourselves don't always align with how others perceive us. And for this reason, Alice doesn't give everyone the right to hear her story. 
I often just make a point of not sort of give the testimony of what happened to me during the Rwandan genocide against the Tutsis because it's a very interesting and very big part of who I am, but it's a part that I am still kind of working myself through. So I don't give, if you wish, a straight testimony. You know, this is what happened on day one and this is what happened on day two. I've written about it in the past, but I have now had a different, had started to have a different approach. So when I do, when I meet people, when I talk publicly or when I do interviews such as these ones, I often make a point to say, I want you to see a bigger picture, to ask questions that are beyond me and my immediate experience. Alice used to tell intimate details about those parts of her story, but it forced her to regularly rehash things that are difficult to confront, let alone share. She also realized that it obscured other pieces of herself in people's eyes, marking her as a victim in her interactions with others. At first, I used to just be like, well, let me tell you what happened to me, and then this happened, and then we we ran in this place, and then this person died. It used to be very sort of as verbatim as I could, whereas now it's much more analytical. 25 years later after the genocide, I think I'm now at the point where I'm like, yeah, now I can slightly analyze this. I want to talk about things that I think I have processed enough to be able to make a point about them. Otherwise, everything else is very emotionally raw. Um, It's still part of, you know, part of things that I don't quite make sense of. It was a slow realization, a gradual one. Alice realized she didn't have to tell her story on demand whenever she was asked, and people would ask with regularity. Telling a story like that, time and time again, takes a toll. I used to do events where people would say, well, can you come and and tell us about your experience of the genocide? And I realized after a little while, I would need a a significant amount of time to recover. Re-narrating your own nightmares can have consequences for the body and mind. The pain that Alice would feel in dredging these tales back up again would manifest in very physical ways. My jaw would hurt. My head would hurt. When you tell a story, even a simple something, well, let me tell you what happened to me last week. You're not just telling a story in the past, you're telling the story as if it was the present. When you tell a story of what happened to you, especially when it's a very painful experience or gruesome experience or stories of abuse or stories of pain, the first sort of consequence of this telling of the story is that you're relieving it as you say it, you know. And so you have to deal with the aftermath of that story. A few days after arriving in Canada from Rwanda, Alice started to realize people wanted her story for themselves. When I arrived in Canada, I think it was my second or third day. Now, this is this is September, which to me was the coldest thing I had ever seen, even though, you know, by normal Canadian standards, it was the fall. But for me, it was really, really cold. So I get there and I am a new student to my first English university. I had never, ever studied in English, fully in English before. So I arrived there. It's cold. I don't know anyone. I don't know anywhere. I didn't have family in Canada. I didn't, like, I knew one person. And I was still sort of trying to figure out who I was. 
two or three days after I arrived, I get, actually it was two days or less than that, because I think I got an email as soon as I landed. And then I got a phone call the next day from this reporter from the CBC who said, oh, we've heard that there is a new student from Rwanda who is coming to this university and we wanted to interview you about your experience. I think if I say that I was shocked, it would be an understatement. The way she kind of framed it was, you know, we know that there's a new student, that she's you're a genocide survivor and we would like to interview you. Alice realized this reporter only saw a story in her, not a young, cold, new arrival who was trying to figure out a new country. They wanted to take that story and broadcast it. To them, that's what she was worth. A story to be extracted, broadcasted, and then discarded. It was telling me that there is a particular form of story and a very simple one that they're interested in. Everything else is somewhat irrelevant. But it was from that moment on that I started really reflecting on how a stories get narrowed down to some sort of very simple version of what they are and B, how that gets perpetuated because people want to hear you so they can reflect on their own A, emotions, but also responses and see how you struggle. Think about the other side of the equation. For once, we should think of what Alice sees. She's telling her tale to people who want to feel for her, to cry for her. They want her to go over the hardest parts of her life so they can feel a connection, to feel empathy, to feel pity. You know, when people say, well, tell us your story, they're not asking me, well, my grandfather had like 30 cows and then we lived. They, they want you to fast forward to the juicy bits. You know, like, and so the militias came and they had a machete. And journalists often fall into this category of like, yeah, well, we can talk about that later, but tell me about this, you know, the gruesome bits of this and the and this this fetishization, if you wish, of the horrible details of people's experiences is something I, I just quite never made peace with. Alice was a journalist herself, so she understands the impulse behind this. You have to tell stories at a human scale. And this can make for some painful encounters. You have to tell stories about people to people so they can make sense to people. It's not unnatural for someone to say, how did you survive? Did you have to hide? Did you actually see someone die? You know, these questions are natural. The idea of of curiosity in other people's stories, I, I don't, I am not opposed to it at all. I think it's a very natural thing to do. But when we are outside of Africa, I think, there is an appetite. I think it's important as a storyteller to reflect on the bigger picture. Not to change the story, but to make sure that when you're telling it, it actually has a purpose that is beyond satisfying the natural curiosity of the audience. And as a scholar and academic, Alice also thought about the larger implications of how her story could be used, read, 
and misinterpreted. When you're telling a story, when we tell stories of Africa, when we tell stories of war, when we tell stories of conflict, when we tell stories of abuse, we are shaping people's minds and people's perceptions of what this place, this event, this um, particular scenario is about. You know, the stories that come from there often come so loaded with prejudice, misperceptions, misunderstandings, and often do not actually produce that understanding that we're looking for. So how do we do justice to these painful histories without sensationalizing them? And if you lived through these hard moments, is there a way to tell your story without performing it? When you become conscious of how stories are also used, it's a very disheartening experience. I have known friends, people, either genocide survivors like like myself or other people who've gone through difficult experiences and who've moved or lived in the West who were just simply reduced to nothing but that very particular story. And it's extremely difficult. But those stories in the end were used either in public or in private and interpersonal relationships as a way to make those who are listening, the audience, think that A, now they know something really important about this other place or this other experience, or B, but now I, have, I, I listen to this person speak about their experience of surviving this and, and I was so touched. And I, but, you know, my story or anyone else's story of pain does not exist for the pleasure and the glorification of someone else's understanding. It always bothered Alice that there are sellers and buyers of stories of collective hardship. There are people who take up the mantle of community representative to the Western world, repackaging pain for personal profit. But often, they're not connected to the communities they're speaking about. Alice handles stories with the care that they deserve and keeps the community in mind. This is not to say that people who only speak of their experience as survivors or as people who've experienced war, that there's anything wrong with it. I also take it as a, as a great responsibility, especially in storytelling, to be a survivor. I feel like it's an honor in many ways to be able to speak and to be able to write stories and to be able to do these types of interventions. So there's a balance that I haven't quite figured out how to sort of, you know, strike equally. But that being said, I think that the, that the stories we tell publicly or through medium, they do shape who we are and they obviously shape what people think of us are you actually telling a story to your people for you and your people or are you telling that story for a westernized curiosity of somewhat horrible details of African lives we owe it to ourselves to think really seriously about how we tell these stories even on a budget Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So what happens when the dust settles? What does it look like to live in the aftermath of telling a story? I don't know if the dust actually settles. It takes a long time. Like, you know, I mean, the very fact that I am here, that I am talking about not telling my story, is a sign that the dust doesn't settle because I, I never quite settled on should I tell my story in a different way? Should I continue telling my story? Or should I tell not tell the story at all? And because it doesn't settle, there is no right way, I think, to deal with one's story, especially when it's when it's a painful one, it doesn't end because your story is you. And stories aren't individual. Many times they're collective. They're the amalgamation of what happens to many generations, many constellations of people. What part is your story and what part is theirs? While my story is personal and individual, it's not unique. The more I speak of my experience, the more special, if you wish, it, it sounds like. But it's not. It is not special. It's just an experience among so many other experiences. Because I think in many African, different African societies, you still have this issue that, A, not only pain is private, it's something you deal with in your family, with your immediate relatives, but also... It's not so special. Your story is the same story as every single person who lives in your neighborhood. You did not go through war differently than your neighbor because he was right there. When you put a spotlight on one person's story, it feels like it takes on a special significance. But that person is just one of many with one of many understandings of what happened. Here, they're exceptional. They're, they're significantly exceptional. And it's that exceptionalism that I take offense with. And some communities deal with pain differently than others. For some people, showing and proclaiming pain aloud is just not how things are dealt with, not how things are processed. It can be alienating. You know, many, many years ago when my aunt read one of the first books, and, you know, my aunt is, is a widow of the genocide, and she lost so many people. So it's not a question of like, isn't she, didn't she go through this? No, she, she did. She didn't. She suffered a great deal and she still does. But when she first read this first book, she was like, well, why is this author going around telling people about this? It's like there is a certain honor in silence. One of the, the most famous words in my language, which we say to each other in a very casual way, so when someone loses their their loved one, or when they fall and trip and break their leg, or, you know, you say, comera, which is be strong. That's how we address each other. Even when you meet someone on the street, you're like, oh, comera, comera. It's like, be strong, be strong. This is a nation of strength, where strength is adulated, it's loved, it's respected. I, I think I'm a very vulnerable person, and I don't think we actually say it 
quite often. In many ways, very fragile because of the different experiences that I've had in my life. I think the people who know me would say that I'm also strong, which is a very interesting dichotomy. So I'm at the same time really highly vulnerable and highly fragile, but also strong. Silence is both protective and perverse. It's protective because it gives you something to fall back on, a willingness, an expectation to keep moving forward in life. But silence also inserts itself in places where it shouldn't belong. What do you do with all that pain unspoken, pain that refuses to be strong? When difficult times arise in a society, and when perhaps being strong is should be understood with a very small grain of salt, then it's become it becomes really difficult because if everybody has been conditioned to be strong, how can you be weak? And this is what I struggled with at, at the end of of the genocide. I was an orphan. I'd lost all of my siblings, my parents, my grandparents, who I'd lived with ever since I was born. And I, I, I struggled to make sense of what happened to me, to make sense of what had happened to my family, to make sense of what was now going to happen. But there was no space to have these conversations. Because if you start telling someone that you don't know what to do and you don't know what how to live with yourself they say komera they say be strong except that no one says where am i supposed to get the strength from my aunt and i have very very rarely talked about what happened in the genocide there is nothing to say there is there's pain but there's nothing to say there is no what do i say what do i say what does she say and how do i relate to her having lost so many people her husband her uh, how there were no words to express what we had just gone through there there is no such a thing i mean you could give the details of where you went during the war and how your child was killed and how your other child was killed by your neighbor you could probably put words on that but you cannot put words on what you felt on the feeling of dying on the feeling of lights going out when you are still standing there are no words for that and so what when i wrote this article in 2008 i think i said the, the rwandan survivors of, of genocide may need the women they just smile and it's that smile that tells you everything about all of the stories that they cannot tell and as life changed for alice as she grew from an adolescent into an adult and then into a mother and PhD student the texture of her recollections changed she experienced the genocide as a child and now 25 years later she can see things she didn't understand then i was 14 when the genocide happened which means i was really a child but at the same time i was on the cusp of becoming an adolescent a full formed adolescent and that's a very interesting part of any child's life it's an interesting transition and so i absorbed a lot of information at that time i you know living through war at, at a young age like that kind of shapes everything you are so there's so much that i absorbed but so much of it i haven't been able to process just yet when these kinds of tales are a part of your life You have to find ways to deal with them. 
If you can't look at something, can't confront it, how are you expected to deal with it? We all adopt, especially in cases of really painful stories, we adopt really weird behavior to be able to recount them without relieving them. Sometimes the way we make jokes out of really painful stories is also something I've often seen among African people in different societies. Laughing doesn't always mean that something is funny. Sometimes it's all you can do to get rid of excess energy building up inside the body. Sometimes the only way you can tell a story is by laughing your way through it. It dampens, at least a little, the fear or anger or sadness. It's a refusal to feel anything else. Most of our stories have no normal words that they can be told in. It's the way to deal with the kinds of tragic things that we've seen. Instead of actually thinking about the fact that I live in a place where there is no sense of security, that where I, when I walk out of my bed, anything can happen. Everything is up for grab. How do you make sense of that? You can't. Whether you laugh at the past or live your life consumed by it, you have to find some kind of way to make sense of it. But the experiences you live through are not the sum total of who you are. Alice has many kinds of stories to tell, whether or not she feels inclined to share them. I am not... Um Someone who thinks that you you have to be one thing. I, I am really open to being different things. I definitely am not set on understanding the world. I feel like there's so much to learn about the world. All this to say, my brain is disorganized most of the time. But I like it that way. Thanks for listening to another episode of On Things We Left Behind with me, Serado, and my sister, Surer. This series was produced by Lucy Hunt for Listen Entertainment and is the winner of the LaunchPod 2019 competition with Listen Entertainment and Acast. On the next episode, The Space Between Stories, we talk about how we decide what to remember and what to forget. If you know, if you don't remember... You know, if you don't remember the past, then I think you don't know where you're going. If you don't know where you've been, then you don't know where you're going. For more episodes, find us on ACAST or wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.